All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 29 for August 2021. 1900 Olympiad 2, The Zany Games. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and is still a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I'm Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about five permanent inhabitants of the cemeteries who represented the United States at the 1900 Paris Olympics. Meredith Colquette, a Penn Scholar who placed second in the pole vault. Bascom Johnson, a Yale pole vaulter who failed to compete but went on to an amazing career in public health. Edward Bushnell, a middle distance runner whose name eventually became synonymous with sports at the University of Pennsylvania. John F. Cregan, another middle distance man but from Princeton. And rower James Benner Juvenal, who won gold with the Vesper Boat Club three years after he eloped to New York City on a tandem bicycle. Another participant, Frederick Winslow Taylor, competed in golf, even though he was far better known as a tennis player and as the father of scientific management. I'm going to save him for a future podcast on tennis players. Colquette and Juvenal are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Johnson, Bushnell, and Cregan are at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. I think you're going to have a great time being informed and entertained by this August 21 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, 1900 Olympiad II, The Zany Games. You know, sometimes this happens when I'm planning a podcast. I find out that I bit off more than I could chew. I intended this episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, to talk about all the Olympians buried at the two cemeteries. I knew there were eight of them. That was a lot, but I thought maybe I could give each person five or seven minutes and give a brief introduction to the Olympics. But Then I discovered a ninth person who went to the Paris Olympics in 1900, but he failed to compete. And then I found a tenth person who did compete and actually won a silver medal. And then I discovered a woman who did not participate in the 1960 Olympics, even though she should have. She was one of the champion skiers in the United States at the time. And then when I started research in earnest, I found out how weird the games of the second Olympiad were. 
So if you tuned in and expected to hear about Lawson and Robertson, Donald Fithian Lippincott, Jervis Watson Burdick, William Evans Garrett Gilmore, and Sally Deaver Murray, you will have to wait a year or so for another podcast. All six people I discussed today participated in the 1900 Paris Olympics. A few of them even knew they were in the Olympics. See, I told you it was going to be weird. More than a century later, when sports historian Howard Berman published his 2017 book on Americans at the Paris Olympics, he titled it The Zany Games. The ancient Greek Olympic Games, one of four Pan-Hellenic festivals, began in 776 before Christian era and ended more than 1,100 years later in 393 A.D. Then there was a gap of 1,503 years before the French aristocrat and educator Baron Pierre de Coubertin 1863 to 1937, revived the games in the spring of 1896 to be played in Athens, their original home. The 1900 Olympics in Paris and the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis were associated with world fairs. In 1900, Paris hosted the Exposition Universelle Internationale de 1900 à Paris. Coubertin made plans to hold the Olympics as part of the fair, and he was prepared to organize the events. But the fair organizers took over the sporting events and relegated Coubertin to a relatively minor administrative role. The exposition site covered 280 acres along the left and right banks of the Seine, from the Eiffel Tower, which had been built for the 1889 exposition, and Champ de Mar to the Esplanade of Les Invalides. An additional area of 250 acres for agricultural exhibits and athletic events was built in the Bois de Vincennes, the largest public park in the city. This is located on the eastern edge of Paris, next to the Chateau de Vincennes, a former residence of the kings of France. The park had been built between 1855 and 1866 by Emperor Napoleon III. The Paris Exposition opened on Saturday, 14 April 1900, the same day that the Automobile Club of America staged the first car race in U.S. history, a 50-mile race on Long Island, starting at 10 a.m. in Springfield to Babylon, New York, and back. A large area within the Bois de Vincennes was used for the sporting events, which included many of the events of the 1900 Summer Olympics and other non-Olympic sporting events. There were 19 different sports with 997 competitors, including for the first time a handful of women participants. There was no opening ceremony, there was no closing ceremony, and the official Olympic Games stretched out over five months from May to October. It was initially difficult to know what events should actually be considered Olympic and which not. The International Olympic Committee had no real control of this. The French organizers had taken charge and they would not let go. They allowed many unusual sports and sport-like events, including motorboating, automobile and motorcycle racing, cricket, 
artistic gymnastics, underwater swimming. There was a 200-meter swimming obstacle race where competitors had to swim under and climb over boats in the Seine. The women's croquet match drew exactly one paying spectator, and that event was never attempted again. Other oddities included Basque Pelota, which is similar to High Lie, Tug of War, and Firefighting. The pigeon race was won by a bird which flew from Paris to its home in Lyon in four and a half hours. Luckily, the pigeon did not get shot, as there was indeed a pigeon shooting competition using live pigeons. More than 300 birds perished in the contest. Of the 26 ballooning events, the distance competition was won by a balloon which traveled 1,925 kilometers from Paris to Ukraine in 35 hours and 45 minutes on 12 and 13 August. As far as I can tell, the balloons didn't get shot either. Initially, only the track and field events were publicized in the media as being part of the Olympics. Many of the events we today consider Olympic, like rowing and swimming and gymnastics, were not labeled as such in 1900. In fact, even years later, many athletes believed that their sport had just been part of the World's Fair. They did not know they had actually competed in the Olympic Games or that they had won medals. Of 997 athletes, France provided 720. They, of course, won the most gold and silver and bronze medal placings. U.S. athletes won the second largest number, but they fielded only 75 of the 997 athletes. Most of the winners did not receive medals. They were given cups or trophies. And bronze medals were not awarded until the 1904 Olympics, but the International Olympics Committee later assigned bronze medals in retrospect to third-place finishers before 1904. And these amateur Olympics were anything but. There were many cash prizes. Professionals competed in fencing. Albert Robert Ayet of France won the Epée for amateurs and masters, and he was given a prize of 3,000 francs. Now, prior to 1908, the United States had no national competition or elimination process to determine who should compete in the Olympics. The presence of any American athlete at the 1896, 1900, or 1904 Olympics was due to the efforts of various colleges and athletic clubs, as well as individual athletes. Princeton and the Boston Athletic Association were the initial representatives of the United States in the 1896 Athens Games. Along with an individual entry, James Brendan Connolly of Harvard, who was the first gold medalist of the modern Olympics. He took the first event final on the opening day. It was the triple jump, sometimes known as the hop, skip, and jump. His winning distance was 44 feet, 11 and 3 quarter inches. The current world record is 60 feet, 0 inches. If you are not familiar with this sport, go to YouTube, watch a few minutes of it in slow motion. It is astonishing how long the human body can stay in midair. 
1900, there was no official U.S. Olympic team, but eight colleges plus the New York Athletic Association sent athletes to compete in Paris. The University of Pennsylvania Quakers legendary track coach Michael Charles Mike Murphy took 13 of his best athletes overseas, and he agreed to coach the American group. In 1941, the University of Pennsylvania dedicated Murphy Fieldhouse as a tribute to Murphy, but it was destroyed by fire in 1968. The Quakers won 21 of the 48 medals eventually awarded to the United States and should have won more. In other words, under Murphy, Penn won more medals than any country other than France, the United States, and Great Britain. Now, I will briefly mention one athlete from the Penn Dental School, Alvin Cranesline, who's buried in Luzerne County. Cranesline is remembered today mainly for two things. First, he earned first place in the 60-meter dash, the 110-meter hurdles, the 200-meter hurdles, and the long jump. His feat of capturing four gold medals would not be matched until Jesse Owens' fame performance at the 1936 Berlin Games. Second, Crane's line revolutionized the hurdles. Until the late 1890s, the standard hurdling technique involved a sprinter clearing each hurdle with both legs tucked under their body. Cranesline used a different approach. He kept his lead leg straight as he passed over each hurdle. This allowed him to maintain his speed, and this soon became the standard technique for hurdles. Meredith Bright Colquette was a Penn student born in 1878 in Philadelphia. His family's wealth came from the railroad business. His paternal grandfather, Coffin Colquette, 1809-1883, served simultaneously as the president of the Chestnut and Walnut Street Passenger Railway and the Philadelphia, Germantown, and Norristown Railroad. The PG&N had opened in June 1832, drawn by horses, and leaving from the corner of 9th and Green every two hours, arriving in Germantown three-quarters of an hour later. It charged the rather steep fare of 25 cents. Six months later, 23 November 1832, a great novelty was introduced when the company put into use a steam locomotive engine built by Matthias W. Baldwin. Baldwin's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section K. Once outside the city limits, this machine could reach the staggering speed of 28 miles per hour. Baldwin's locomotive could draw four cars loaded with passengers to Germantown, a distance of six miles, in 28 minutes. Meredith Colquette was a graduate of the William Penn Charter School, founded in 1689, and the fifth oldest elementary school in the United States. A few months after graduation, on 11 November 1896, a local newspaper noted that he attended a talk on the newly discovered Rentgen rays at the Contemporary Club. It was given by Professor Arthur W. Goodspeed. The lecture was made complete with lantern slides. This fascinating invention had been discovered only the year before by University of Würzburg professor William Rentgen. 
the Contemporary Club had been organized 10 years earlier to hold discussions on outstanding questions of the day and to present scholarly papers by public figures. Colquette was a member of Phi Gamma Delta student fraternity, Fiji, at 3004 Walnut Street. The fraternity had been founded in 1848 at Jefferson College in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, precursor of Jefferson Medical College and the Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Although organized tennis had been present at Penn as early as 1880, it took the university several years to catch up with its Ivy League counterparts in forming an official tennis team. In 1896, Penn held their first interscholastic tennis tournament with a team organized by Cole Kett, who lettered in tennis all four years. He was not a tennis natural, but he made up for his lack of skills with what everyone recognized as a fierce fighting spirit. Colquette also participated in track and field events and specialized in the pole vault. He and fellow Phi Gam George W. Orton went to the 1900 Olympics in Paris. To date, 33 Phi Gams have won 44 medals at the Olympic Games. Americans had started their success in Olympic pole vaulting at the first modern version of the game at Athens in 1896, when Harvard grad William Hoyt and Princeton student-athlete Albert Tyler took the gold and the silver over two Greek athletes who tied for the bronze. Pole vaulting was initially used as a practical means of passing over natural obstacles in marshy places such as the canals in the Netherlands and the fens in England. Artificial drainage of these marshes created a network of open drains or canals which intersected each other. To cross these without getting soaked while avoiding tedious roundabout journeys over bridges, a stack of jumping poles was kept at every house and used for vaulting over the canals. It was also used in warfare sieges to get over obstacles such as enemy walls or used to vault onto animals such as bulls and horses. In other words, the original pole vaulters wanted as much horizontal distance as they did vertical distance. Now, the earliest poles were made of hardwood, such as ash. That means they had no bend to assist with any vertical lift. Bamboo poles followed as the sport became more competitive. While steel and aluminum poles made a brief appearance in the world of pole vaulting in the 1950s and 60s, the next major advance came in the form of fiberglass and carbon fiber poles, first introduced in the United States in 1956. Pole vaulters' poles are among the least regulated of any Olympic apparatus. The pole can be made of any material or combination of materials. It can be of any length or diameter. It can have protective layers of tape at the grip and at the bottom end. The runway is at least 40 meters long, and vaulters can place as many as two markers on the runway. Competitors plant their poles in a one-meter-long box that's 60 centimeters wide at the front and 15 centimeters wide at the back. That's two feet wide at the front and six inches wide at the back. The crossbar is 4.5 meters wide. 
At the 1900 Summer Olympics in Paris, 11 athletes from five nations were to compete in the pole vault. The match was set for 15 July 1900, a Sunday. America's three top vaulters, Yale's Bascom Johnson, who is favored to easily win, Michigan's Charles Dvoriak, who would win the event in 1904 at St. Louis, and Princeton's Daniel Horton were all deeply religious. They said they would not compete on a Sunday. The French refused to move the competition back a day to Friday 14 July, as that was Bastille Day, a French national holiday. Now, the organizers assured the vaulters that they could vault on Monday and their results would count. But on Saturday, the organizers decided that the results of Sunday competitions would be final. And the American vaulters did not learn of that decision until after the event had concluded. Penn student Irving Baxter, who later became an attorney in New York, was not a regular vaulter. He had just won the gold for the high jump, which started at 2.45 p.m. And when the pole vault competition began 45 minutes later, he decided, what the heck, he would join the fun. Baxter won the gold with a rise of 3.3 meters. That's 10 feet 10 inches. It tied the 1896 Olympic record. Teammate and fellow Penn athlete Meredith Colquette finished second with a jump of 3.25 meters, 10 feet 8 inches. Norway's Carl Albert Anderson took bronze with 3.2 meters, 10 feet 5 inches. Legend has it that a year after the Paris Games at a 1901 British competition, Baxter used a flagpole to compete in the pole vault competition. At a so-called revenge competition a few days later, the three strictly religious pole vaulters all won easily. The current Olympic pole vault record for men is 6.03 meters, 19 feet, 9 and 1 quarter inches, set by Thiago Braz da Silva of Brazil in 2016. Colquette's success in Paris did not have much influence on his sporting orientation. He preferred to devote himself to tennis. While in law school at Penn, he was the student champion in doubles in 1903, and he helped Penn reach the intercollegiate championship in 1904. After completing law school, he worked as an agent for the General Accident Insurance Company. He continued to enjoy tennis and played on the Marion Cricket Club tennis team, where he lived after his father's death a year or two earlier. On 4 February 1911, while on board the steamer Arabelle en route to London, Colquette met Miss Alberta Kelsey of West Haven, Connecticut. She was the daughter of the late Israel Kelsey, president of the Winchester Avenue and West Haven trolley lines, who had left her a large fortune when he died in 1900. A shipboard romance developed, and on 16 March, Colquette cabled home that he was engaged. Less than a month later, on 12 April 1911, Meredith and Alberta surprised both families by marrying at St. George's Hanover Square in London. They went on to have two sons, Meredith Bright Colquette Jr., 1912 to 1985, who made a name for himself as a genealogist with the National Archives, and Gordon W. Colquette. 
On 8 June 1947, Meredith Colquette died of a heart attack at age 68 while in an ambulance carrying him to Bryn Mawr Hospital. He was buried in the family lot overlooking the Schuylkill River at Laurel Hill Cemetery. It's Section K, lots 5 through 8. His next-door neighbor to the north is Monsignor Sigourney Fay, whom I talked about in podcast number 19. You have to walk around to the rear of the monument to see his name. Alberta died at 85 in 1966, and she is buried in the same plot, along with Meredith Jr. The predicted pole vault gold medalist Bascom Johnson, 1878-1954, was born at Washington, D.C., where his father, Dr. Joseph Tabor Johnson, was professor of gynecology at Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Joseph Johnson was a founder of the American Gynecological Society in 1876. Bascom attended Yale University and excelled at college athletics. An article in the Boston Globe, dated 10 October 1898, was titled Champion of Yale and gave results of an all-campus champion athlete of Yale contest, which Johnson won. He had won the pole vault at the IC4A championship in 1897 and 1900, and was third at that meet in 1898 and second in 1899. Johnson also won the pole vault at the Harvard-Yale dual meet in 1897, 1898, and 1900. Bascom was raised a strict Congregationalist, which explains his reluctance to participate in Sunday competition at Paris, where the winning jump was four inches less than his personal best. After graduating from Yale in 1900, Johnson moved to Philadelphia and received his law degree from Penn in 1903. He practiced law in Philadelphia until 1909. Then, after two years as a law officer with the Federal Indian Bureau, he's found his true life calling in 1913 when he joined the American Social Hygiene Association and was instrumental in leading efforts to control venereal disease and eradicate prostitution in Western American cities, including the infamous Barbary Coast Red Light District of San Francisco. Then, during the Great War, Johnson played a huge role in combating venereal disease among American soldiers. As Major Johnson, he became director of the Sanitary Corps of the National Army. In 1918, he published a much-discussed article entitled, Eliminating Vice from Camp Cities, that was in the annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences. Quote, During the year 1916, the annual venereal disease rate in the Army was 91 per thousand. If that rate were kept up during the first year of the war with the 1,600,000 men in the Army, we should have had during that period 145,000 troops incapacitated from venereal diseases. The Surgeon General's office estimates that the average time during which soldiers so diseased are incapacitated for service is 18 days. That would have meant that 2,620,800 days of training and military service would have been lost to the United States. The Surgeon General also estimates that 25% of soldiers who contract venereal disease are permanently impaired. 
If the pre-war state of disease had continued, nearly 36,400 troops would have been permanently impaired and unable to perform anything but the lightest form of service. That is more than a division. Before the war, there were two camp cities in this country, I will not name them, who were responsible for the highest venereal disease rates among the troops stationed near their borders. One of these cities was responsible for a venereal rate of 250 per thousand among its troops, and the other for a rate of 200 per thousand. As you see, venereal disease was endemic in the early 20th century. Estimates were that one-tenth of people would contract syphilis at some time in their lives, and perhaps two to three times as many people would contract gonorrhea. In spite of these rather startling facts, VD was a taboo topic because of the stigma associated with these diseases. There were stereotypes about race, class, and gender, along with ideas about morality that shaped popular attitudes of these diseases. A woman with venereal disease was assumed to be a prostitute whereas a man was assumed to have visited a prostitute. These negative associations limited popular and financial support for public health control programs related to syphilis and gonorrhea. As long as the symbols of VD were sex workers, African Americans, soldiers and sailors, the working poor and other marginalized groups, resources devoted to controlling these diseases were scarce. However, in the 1930s, popular attitudes about venereal disease changed dramatically in the United States. Syphilis and gonorrhea became topics that people now encountered in their everyday life, in all types of media, at work and school, and in a multitude of public spaces. Newspapers, popular and professional periodicals, radio programs, films, and other media also covered the issue in greater numbers. And by the late 1930s, federal, state, and local governments had appropriated millions of dollars for VD control. It was no small feat during the Great Depression. Now, approximately 90% of Americans were in favor of not only a government bureau to distribute information about VD, but also a congressional appropriation of more than $25 million to help control the illnesses. Until the development of penicillin, there was no effective treatment for gonorrhea, although many things were tried. The natural history of untreated gonococcal infection is spontaneous resolution and microbiological clearance after weeks or even months of unpleasant symptoms drainage, pain with urination, etc. During this time, there is a substantial likelihood of transmission to others and of complications developing in the infected individual. Now, in case you are curious, the term Johnson as a slang nickname for the male penis actually dates back to the mid-19th century. That's long before Bascom Johnson's time. And his time in government service predated the horrendous Tuskegee experiment that was conducted by the U.S. government between 1932 and 1972. After his military work on venereal disease, from 1924 to 27, Johnson directed investigations for the League of Nations on the international so-called white slave traffic, that is, sex slavery. 
Later, he led a tour of China and other Asian nations as part of an international effort to eradicate sex slavery and to improve conditions of those involved with the sex trade. He was instrumental in closing 130 red light districts in this country and conducted vice and venereal disease campaigns in more than 800 communities. Johnson retired to North Carolina in 1945. He was occasionally called back to do more work for the government. He died there in October 1954, leaving his wife, Sophie Frances Adams Johnson, two sons and a daughter. Now, despite only a relatively brief stay in Philadelphia from 1900 to 1909, he is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, the Lansdowne section, plot 203. And although he did not officially compete in the 1900 Olympics, he was there, and he probably would have won. I'm going to take a slight break here and let you know that tickets for the 2021 Gravediggers Ball are now on sale. The Gravediggers Ball is the biggest annual fundraiser for the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This year, it's going to be at the Penn Museum, a truly unique celebration in a very special setting. Don't miss this opportunity. Dress in costume. Enjoy the festivities of the evening and support a wonderful cause. For ticket and sponsorship information, please visit www.gravediggersball.org or thelaurelhillcemetery.org. The Gravediggers Ball will be on Friday, October 15th, 2021. Also, tickets are now on sale for the 13th annual RIP 5K, taking place on October 2nd on the historic grounds of Laurel Hill Cemetery. It's a run for the dead, not from them. The Rest in Peace 5K is the premier Halloween costume run in the region. Dress you and your dog in your best costumes. Show us what you've got. To purchase tickets for you, your dog, or to sponsor this event, please visit www.rip5k.org or thelaurelhillcemetery.org Proceeds from these events will benefit the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, a 501c3 nonprofit that works to preserve and promote the historical character of both Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries through educational programs and public outreach. Back to Paris and the 1900 Olympics. Edward Rogers Bushnell was born the son of Methodist missionaries in Republican City, Nebraska on 5 December 1876. He attended Hastings College in Nebraska before transferring to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in 1899. That was at the start of his junior year. The Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania had been established in 1881 with a $100,000 donation from Quaker businessman Joseph Wharton, who's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section G. At Penn, Bushnell was involved in both sports and journalism. He was a member of two varsity teams, track and cross country. And during his two years at Penn, he served as captain of the cross country team. He was also chair of the Houston Club's press committee and a member of the Pennsylvania Debating Union and the Western Club. 
He earned his Bachelor of Science degree from Penn in 1901, and in the same year he received his Bachelor of the Arts degree from Hastings College in Nebraska. In sports, Bushnell was best known as a champion middle-distance runner, hitting his peak in his junior and senior years at Penn. In 1900, he was victorious in the Intercollegiate Championship Mile Run. He attended the Paris Olympics representing the United States in the 800-meter run on 14 and 16 July, which was run on the 500-meter round track. Eighteen athletes from seven nations competed, with the gold eventually going to Great Britain's Alfred Tyso, who ran 201.2 in the finals. Princeton's John Cregan, who's buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and Providence's Dave Hall finished second and third. Bushnell finished somewhere between fourth and sixth with an unknown time at the semifinals, so he did not advance to the finals. Now, he did place third in a 2,500-meter steeplechase that was a handicap event and therefore not included in the official Olympic records for that year. His handicap of 175 meters in a 2,500-meter event seems extreme, but the first and second place finishers have been given a handicap of 230 and 240 meters. The winning time for that was 717.2. Bushnell returned to the Olympics in London in 1908, but this time as the official photographer for the U.S. Olympic team. While at Penn, Bushnell had supported himself by serving as a campus correspondent for the Philadelphia Press. For the first 15 years after graduation, he worked as an editorial writer for the Philadelphia North American and the Evening Public Ledger, and he edited A History of Athletics at Penn, which was published in 1908. In 1916, he turned his full attention to campus publications at his alma mater. He founded Franklin Field Illustrated, the program handed out at Penn Home football games. He also became editor of Old Penn, an eight-page tabloid newspaper started in 1902. But in 1909, Old Penn shrank to magazine size with a cover and better quality paper and was subscribed to by some 5,000 full-time students. Bushnell served as Penn's director of publicity from 1919 to 1925, during which time he reestablished Old Penn as the Pennsylvania Gazette in February 1918, and he remained its editor until 1928. Because of his extensive knowledge of Penn athletics, Bushnell also took on the role of graduate manager of athletics from 1918 to 1921, and he served as chairman of the membership committee of the General Alumni Society of the University of Pennsylvania. Outside of the university, Bushnell edited the annual souvenir yearbook of the Intercollegiate Amateur Athletic Association of America, the IC4A. Along with Penn coach Mike Murphy, he wrote a book entitled Athletic Training. He became the president of the Philadelphia chapter of American Olympic Athletes. In November 1937, Bushnell underwent a personal tragedy when his 34-year-old son, Edward Theodore Bushnell, a graduate of New York University, died in Newark Memorial Hospital following an operation for appendicitis. 
Bushnell died in Moorestown, New Jersey on 5 January 1951 at the age of 74, leaving behind his wife, three daughters, and a son. He was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Oxford Section, Lot 438. John Francis Cregan was born in Schenectady, New York in January 1878. He was a student at Princeton University for a few years and for a short time a member of the New York Athletic Club. In his late teens and early 20s, he was one of the best middle distance runners in the United States. He took part in the U.S. Athletics Championships in 1897 and 1898 and won the one-mile run. His best time was 427.6. As a student, he took part in the competitions of the IC4A from 1898 to 1900. This is what determined the National Student Championships. He won the 880-yard run in 1898, and he won the one-mile run for three years in a row. The IC4A had been established in 1875, and the competition started in 1876. It served as the top-level collegiate track and field meeting in the United States prior to the establishment of the NCAA championship, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, in 1921. The high point of Cregan's athletic career was the 1900 Summer Olympics in Paris. He was one of three Tigers to participate, along with Robert Garrett Jr. and Frank Jarvis. His intention was to compete in the 800-meter run and the 1500-meter run. Cregan easily won his 800-meter heat on Saturday, July 14th. But the next day, July 15th, when the 1500-meter preliminaries were to be run, was a Sunday, and Cregan was devoutly religious. Together with his compatriot Alex Grant, he therefore decided not to start. As we have already seen, the French organizers had no sympathy with the wishes of many U.S. Sabbatarian athletes who did not want to compete on the Holy Day. The French decided, because of the low number of participants, to forego the 1,500-meter prelims and organize the final run immediately. Cregan was thus robbed of a sure medal chance. The next day, on Monday, 16 July, Cregan competed in the 800-meter final, and he finished second, three yards behind Great Britain's Alfred Tyso's 201.2. So he secured the silver medal. The current record for 800 meters, by the way, is 140.91. That's more than 20 seconds faster than the 1900 time. In June 1904, Cregan married Miss Julia Converse, not Converse, eldest daughter of George J. Converse, general manager of the New Jersey Zinc and Iron Company. At the time, they were the country's largest producer of zinc and zinc products. They were married in South Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. John went into the family business and became a mining engineer, eventually becoming superintendent of zinc oxide interests of the American Metal Company Limited. After a 54-year marriage, Julia died in 1958. John outlived her by seven years and lived with his daughter, Catherine Brinton Horton, at the Barclay on Rittenhouse Square. He died of pneumonia at Chestnut Hill Hospital the day after Christmas 
1965. John and Julia are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Edgewood Section, Lot 145. Probably no sport is more linked to Philadelphia than rowing. City founder William Penn regularly rowed his barge along the Delaware River. The city's 18th century landed gentry kept boats below their homes on the Fairmount Bluffs next to the Schuylkill River, both for recreation and for transportation into the heart of the city. By the mid-18th century, two Philadelphia social clubs, the Fishing Company and Fort St. David, were challenging each other to the river's first recorded races. But it wasn't until completion of the Fairmount Dam in 1821 that the river was tamed, and the lower Schuylkill from East Falls to above Arch Street essentially became a lake. In September of 1835, only months before Laurel Hill Cemetery opened, rowing began in earnest when a pair of eight-oared barges representing the Imp Social Club and the Blue Devil Social Club squared off in a three-mile race. Thousands of spectators lined the banks and watched the Imps prevail. The race was such a hit that a November regatta was planned and seven teams took to the water, again to packed crowds cheering along the riverbanks. Who rode? Well, the privileged, mostly. The University Barge Club was founded in 1854 by college men from the city's elite families. Other clubs followed. They progressed from clumsy eight-oared barges to sleek four- and eight-man shells, and later single- and double skulls. As the sport grew, clubs built architecturally ornate and distinctive clubhouses adjacent to one another on the east bank of the Schuylkill, establishing what became known as Boathouse Row. Though the competition between the clubs was fierce on the water, representatives of the nine major clubs met in the fall of 1858 and established the Schuylkill Navy, the oldest body overseeing amateur sports in the country. It was to sanction races, set rules, settle disputes, and promote camaraderie among rowers. The Vesper Boat Club's stated goal is to produce Olympic champions. Located at number 10 Boathouse Row with College Boat Club upstream and University Boat Club downstream, Vesper was founded in February 1865 as the Washington Barge Club. The clubhouse was constructed in tandem with neighboring Malta at number 9 Boathouse Row. They look kind of like a super gothic Philadelphia row home. The ornamental Victorian boathouse was designed by noted Philadelphia architect George Hewitt. He was a former student of John Notman, a former partner of Frank Furness, both of whom I talked about in podcast number five, and he was a former supervisor of Daniel Sullivan, who later became an instructor to Frank Lloyd Wright. The architecture of the boathouse is typical of that period. Club members who were tradesmen constructed the original building using local building materials. Five years later, on 1 January 1870, it changed its name to Vesper Boat Club and soon became one of the most celebrated rowing clubs in the United States and the world. 
At the inaugural 1896 Games in Athens, the rowing competition was canceled due to strong winds. Today, all races are raced over a 2,000-meter course, or 1.24 miles. This did not become standard until the Stockholm Olympics in 1912. The 1900 regatta was held on the Seine on 25 and 26 August. It ran between the Courbevoie Bridge and the Asnier Bridge, and the length of the course was 1,750 meters. 5,740 feet, 1.09 miles. And Vesper's eight-oared shell took the gold. James Benner Juvenal, 1874-1942, was a member of Vesper. Rowing in position number six and considered one of the best and best-known rowers in the country. In 1893, at age 19, Juvenal won the Middle States Regatta near Scranton, Pennsylvania, rowing in an aluminum shell, said to be the first time such a boat was used in competition. Between 1893 and 1906, he won more than 100 races, including the 1902 National Association Single Skulls Championship and six consecutive championships of the Schuylkill Navy. Juvenal was also a crack bicyclist. Now, during the second half of the 19th century, railroads still dominated the transportation injury, and roads were considered secondary. But a new form of transportation, not the motor car, the bicycle, swept the country during the 1880s and eventually led to paved roads. Rather than the initial vehicle you imagine with its dangerous tall front wheel and the small back wheel, the penny farthing, these bicycles had two wheels that were the same size and had pneumatic tires. The Good Roads Movement began in the 1890s in response to poor road conditions. And with bicycle enthusiasts working at federal, state, and local levels, they became the first lobbyists for government money for paved roads. Now, on 29 September 1897, James Benner Juvenal and Miss Anna M. Gilbert, another Philadelphian a year his junior, made news when they were found wandering, covered in dust, and perspiring freely outside New York City Hall, apparently confused. Juvenal was wearing a sweater and knickerbockers and a cap bearing the emblem of a Philadelphia bicycle club. Annie was clad in a neat brown bicycle suit with a brown derby hat covering, quote, a head of magnificent auburn hair, end quote. When lawyer Max Franklin noticed them about to circle the building for a third time, he asked how he could help. Juvenile queried where they could find an alderman so they could be married. The two had bicycled on a tandem machine, that is, a bicycle built for two, a century from Philadelphia starting at 10 in the morning with the intent of being wed that day. They found an alderman named Clancy who ascended to perform the ceremony and within 10 minutes they were made man and wife. It was barely 4 p.m. 
The couple had traversed 100 miles in less than six hours on less than ideal roads to a city where they knew no one and they still had time for a wedding ceremony. And this was all done on a bet. Juvenile had wagered $100 with a friend that he and Annie could get to New York on a bicycle and be married by sundown. Juvenile was quoted as saying to a reporter, quote, We can't say a word about this. If it is known at home within the next month, there will be trouble for a lot of people. I'll say this much, though. We came over here on a tandem to get married in a hurry, and we're going to start for home by the same route as soon as we get our chain repaired. End quote. At the conclusion of the vows, the bride and bridegroom cried, Goodbye, all! and trotted down the marble steps of City Hall to begin their trek home. One newspaper noted that Juvenile was a member of the Pennsylvania Barge Club and lives with his mother on Wayne Avenue above Mannheim in Germantown. Another newspaper, the Times of Philadelphia, had the rather head-spinning subtitle, Philadelphia's Crack Oarsman and His Bride Sought Hyman on a Tandem. I did some quick research. Uh, Hyman is the son of Apollo and one of the muses and is the god of marriage. Now, if I were a classical scholar, I would know that Hyman is supposed to attend every wedding. If he does not, then the marriage will supposedly prove disastrous. So, Greeks run around calling his name aloud during a wedding ceremony. Back to Paris. On the day of the race in Paris, the Vesper Boat Club was the only American boat at the start. William Carr, Harry DeBakey, John Exley, John Geiger, Edwin Headley, James Juvenal, Roscoe Lockwood, Edward Marsh, and helmsman Louis Abel won the mile-plus run at 607.8 with six seconds to spare ahead of the Belgian eight. Now, the Vesper Boat Club repeated its run for the gold four years later at the St. Louis Olympics, but this time without Juvenal, who had instead competed in the single skulls and finished two lengths behind Bostonian Frank Greer taking the silver. In 1906, Juvenal turned professional to become a rowing coach, first with the Malta Boat Club, where he turned out 14 winners. He also spent a short stint around 1911 as the national coach in Cuba. During the Great War, he was a lieutenant in the U.S. Naval Reserve in New Jersey, where he served as an athletic and training officer. Juvenile studied electricity at the Drexel Institute and was employed for 40 years by the Philadelphia Electric Company until he retired in 1939. I would love to report that Jim and Annie had a long, fruitful marriage after their whirlwind trek to New York. But alas, they were divorced in 1905. Anna claiming cruel treatment and James offering no defense on his behalf. He remarried a few years later to Belle Amelia Rogers. At the time he died, at age 68 in the U.S. Naval Hospital in 1942, his obituary mentioned three daughters. Belle outlived him by 10 years and died of breast cancer, also at the U.S. Naval Hospital in 1952. James Benner Juvenal. 
twice Olympic medalist in rowing, one gold and one silver, and his wife, Belle, are buried in the south section of Laurel Hill Cemetery, section 10, plot 125. He has a simple marble military-issue stone, which is rapidly melting. I am going to stop here, even though there is one more person I could talk about from the 1900 Olympics. If you've ever taken a sociology class, you probably recognize the name Frederick Winslow Taylor, 1856 to 1915. He is recognized as the father of industrial efficiency and scientific management. But Taylor was also an accomplished tennis and golf player. He and Clarence Clark, who is in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, won the inaugural United States National Tennis Doubles Championship at Newport Casino in 1881. But in the 1900 Summer Olympics, Taylor finished fourth in golf. That would be a lot to add to an already full program. So I will save my research on Frederick Winslow Taylor for a future podcast I have scheduled. It's called Tennis Anyone? Next time in the September 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's number 30, The Saturday Courier. Philadelphia has always been a town of magazines, from the early days of the Pennsylvania Gazette to the heyday of the Curtis Publishing Company and the Ladies' Home Journal, the Saturday Evening Post. Among the more important publications was the Philadelphia Saturday Courier. It was founded by editor and publisher Morton McMichael, whose statue greets you on Lemon Hill in Fairmount Park. Humorist and publisher Joseph Clay Neal, who is sometimes called America's Dickens, and Louis Antoine Godey, publisher of Godey's Ladies Book. I will talk about these three and their connections with a struggling young writer just starting his career named Edgar Allan Poe in the next episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, The Saturday Courier. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood. There's parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Follow the white line in the middle of the road when you come in from Belmont, and it'll take you right to the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October, and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, on leashes please, bike riders, including tandem bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again. 
And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you will get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and our activities. If that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tours number one, and brand new is virtual tour number two. And I did another one called All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, video podcast number one. This is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Also, podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is available as a video podcast on YouTube. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. You will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until the next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at my email address, joe at joelex.net, or my Twitter handle at joelex5. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years and I read you some news while playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references I use for this podcast, and there are a few of them. So until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Virtually everything I use for a reference for this podcast was from one of the numerous online sources celebrating the Olympics. Also, there were some good information from sports at the University of Pennsylvania or from the newspapers of the day. Now, for more information on these events, if you want to learn more about the Zini Games, try Zini Games, America at the 1900 Paris Olympics by Howard Berman. If you want to learn more about the work of Bascom Johnson, find his book, Next Steps, a program of activities against prostitution and venereal disease for communities which have closed their red light districts. It's published by the United States Commission on Training Camp. There's also the investigation into the traffic in women by the League of Nations, Sociological Jurisprudence as an International Social Project. It's written by Paul Nepper. It was published in Law and History Review, February 2016, Volume 34, Number 1, pages 45 to 73. For someone who wanted to keep his elopement and marriage a secret, James Juvenal did a bad job because I found newspaper reports on his adventures in three newspapers by three different reporters, and it's possible there are more. Almost all of his information came from newspapers. Information about the history of rowing in Philadelphia came from the Schuylkill Navy website. Thanks for listening again. Until September, stay safe, stay well.